that I would encourage you to turn again in God's Word, this time to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 16. I'll be reading verses 13 through 21. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah, are one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, illumine our hearts and minds, we pray, as we open your word to hear and understand. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in the military, which many of you know is my background, um, we, we do everything by acronyms, right? It doesn't matter if the words make sense, but if the initials sound good, we'll go with it. All right? So anytime there was a, a, a large program, a special program or event or something important was going to happen, there were certain people who would be put in charge of it, right? And you could count that there would be IPRs. I'm sure you all know what an IPR is. An IPR is an in-progress review. So, so, for instance, the commander will give certain members of his staff uh, the task of preparing um, – I'm having lack of an idea for a, just a, a large event – so then about a month into it, say this event is going to be about six months out in its preparation. Uh, maybe it was some sort of big mission or operation of which you're getting ready to deploy or something like that. So about once a month, the commander would call his, his staff in and say, okay, I need you to give me the progress report of, of where we are. I want to know what you've done, what your status is. Give me any information I might need to know and any decisions I might need to make at this point. And so that was an IPR. Now, especially those younger, those in school, uh, you're familiar with tests, right? Now, teachers, now I should confirm this with my wife ahead of time, a lot of times you're building up, right, to the last test of the 
the year, right? Your finals. So you hope that your test in between when you started the class and your final exam, you hope the test kind of lead you and help prepare you in order to take that final exam, right? So I kind of want to just give those couple of things out that maybe you can, can relate to a little bit because this is almost an IPR for the disciples. Or this is a question getting them ready for the final exam because it's almost there. Jesus has spent almost three years with his disciples to this point. And we don't have to go back far uh, in, in Matthew's gospel even. Uh, but, you know, by this point, he's given a lot of teaching. They've seen him perform a lot of miracles. They've, they've heard him um, really do, do uh, some, some verbal com combatives with uh, the Sadducees and Pharisees to this point. And he's been developing them, training them. He's their rabbi because he knows what? He's about to die. It's been his mission, in a sense, to prepare them for his death. And so we come to this passage right here and where they come into a district, and they take them aside, and it's quiz time. Jesus needs to know where his disciples are. So he asked them a couple of what seemed to be on the surface fairly uh, benign questions, but they're packed with meaning. The first question is, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Note even right here, a little bit of the distinction between the two questions. He says, who do the people say the Son of Man is? But then when he asks the disciples, he says, he doesn't say, who do you say the Son of Man is? He says, who do you say I am? The Son of Man is a term that Jesus often took to himself. And, and so, so it's even saying here, uh, if we put these two questions next to ourselves, this little nuance in the way that Jesus asked the questions, one was to the people out there. And I kind of put in here in, in, in your outline the view of the world. What do others say? But he asked them specifically, what do they say about the Son of Man? And so he gets what really would have been uh, some, some predictable answers. All right? Um, especially if, if you kind of uh, look at the context of the day in which they were living in some of the, the culture. Uh, but John the Baptist, all right? John the Baptist played a prominent role uh, kind of as a contemporary almost of Jesus Christ, his preaching in the wilderness, his preparing the way for the Messiah. He was bold. He dressed funny, and he ate funny. But he had a powerful spirit of the Lord upon him to where he was not afraid, uh, as we would say, to speak truth to power, to kings and whoever would listen. And his message was repent. Get your hearts right. 
because you don't come to the Messiah. You don't come to the Lord's anointed without getting your, or you need to get yourself self-right. It's, uh, so John the Baptist, go back a chapter. This is kind of puzzling or interesting too, because John the Baptist had just been beheaded. But, all right, I, I tell you my, my military background. So, any of you have this? Don't no offense. I find soldiers that a lot of people can tend to be superstitious. They used to think of me sometimes as a rabbit's foot, you know, a lucky charm. Hey, chaplain, we're about ready to go into battle. You want to come over here? You know, you know. They may not want to have anything to do with me during the week, but if there's some trouble, it's like, hey, come rub elbows with me. It may rub off. And so John the Baptist had just been beheaded. But he, he was the, the people to the people. Hey, this strange guy in the wilderness who ate weird and dressed weird, but, man, he sure was powerful with the Lord. And so maybe, maybe it's the ghost of John the Baptist who's come back into Jesus. And so, it, in, in, in a certain logic, it wasn't as weird as we may think. The next was Elijah. All right? Famous prophet of the Old Testament. Elijah, uh, how did Elijah's life end, you might say? He was taken up into heaven, right? Uh, chariot of fire. So he did not experience death on earth. And so, so this is maybe a little bit even more um, realistic for them because Elijah had been prophesied, hey, he was taken up and not, not killed. And so it, it, it makes more sense. Maybe it's, maybe it's Elijah. Now, the third one may make, not make, uh, again, sense to our ears because the third one was Jeremiah. And it was like, okay, uh, where do we get John, Jeremiah and uh, John the Baptist, kind of, uh, Elijah? But this is probably inserted in here. We don't have in our Bibles uh, the books of Maccabees, all right? But, in, in, uh, but it would have been certainly familiar to the Jewish uh, mind and, and listeners of this day. Because in Jewish history, it was very recent. In the book of Second Maccabees, there's talk of Jeremiah, who has, before he died, had come and, and left some things here on earth, but that before the Messiah came, he was going to come and reclaim those things in pronouncing uh, the Messiah. So these, these are ideas. But it, again, I, I kind of classify these, even though it says here, who do others say that I am? In, in your outline, I say the views of the world. Every generation here has their opinions on who Jesus is. And you know what those are? Opinions. They're like noses. Everyone has one. And, you know, uh, as I would go around, I, I wish I had a nickel for every time I had a soldier come up to me and say, Chaplain, you want to know what I think? And if I knew them fairly well, I'd say, no, <laughs> not really. 
do you want to tell me what Scripture says? Then we'll talk. Sometimes that was a little bit more diplomatic. Sometimes less. But I developed this idea in my head. You know what the number one, I think, religion in the world is? And it's not, you know, uh, Buddhism. It's not Islam. It's I thinkism. Because if you ask the world today what they think of Jesus, you're going to get what? A lot of maybe some sincere, maybe some less sincere, maybe some plausible, maybe not uh, some others not as plausible. But you're just going to get a lot of opinions and ideas. And I won't speculate on what's going through those people's minds when they come up with their ideas. Other than they're not based on Scripture. So then we have Jesus turning from that initial question, who do others say the Son of Man is, to who do you say I am? And, not surprisingly, with Peter's reputation, he's the one who responds collectively, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Very simple. But Jesus is excited about this. He, he, he right away says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. In other words, you got it. You know, if you're teaching, if you're mentoring, if you're developing somebody and you're trying to get a point across to them and it's just been struggled, you're wondering if they're ever going to get it, and all of a sudden the light bulb goes on, that's exciting. Jesus is, is excited to hear this. And here's an, a, a, a key part to this. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter probably did not understand the full import of what he said. Because in his answer, he really pre presents one of the greatest theological truths of Scripture. We call it Christology. And there are, there are whole seminary courses taught on what we call Christology, the study of Christ and what it means. And it goes back to what I, I mentioned uh, at the beginning of our, our worship, that when he says, you are the Christ, he's talking about encompassing the very nature of who Jesus is. Was he God? Was he incarnate? Was he God in the flesh? The declaration, you are the Christ, is declaring that he is God in the flesh. That he is not just a man with part of a nature. As one commentator says this, no mere man, not even the most exalted of men, which was a common opinion held for the Messiah to be, but the Son of God, 
of the substance of the Father, begotten from everlasting, God of God, perfect God and perfect man, Son of God and Son of Man. Such was Peter's faith. Yes, it was a statement of faith. Because it wasn't something Peter came up with through his own deductive reasoning. It was something, as Jesus said, this was revealed to you by my Father who is in heaven. And see, being the Christ also talks to his person. He had performed many miracles. He had done many wonders in their midst. But is everyone who comes and performs miracles and wonders able to save? No. But the person, the Christ, is able to save. So as he goes and begins to explain to them about his, up, his impending crucifixion, I'm about to be killed, but it's not just some sort of political martyrdom. It is a sacrifice. And it is a sacrifice that is sufficient to salvation. That is implied in him being the Christ. And it also speaks to an office, this person of Christ, that he indeed is Lord, that he indeed is the inheritor, the inheritor of David's throne. He is not just a king. You know, it's so ironic. Pilate, just a, just a few chapters later, is going to ask him, are you king? And he says, yes, but it's not in any sense that you conceive of a king. But he is king of kings. And this idea, even though a simple statement, you are the Christ, is really one of the hardest truths for us to understand and accept. And perhaps it's the one that the evil one tries to combat the most. For I don't know any generation since this declaration was made that hasn't been challenged and debated this question, who is Jesus? We see in the early church that it took eventually uh, ecumenical, what we call ecumenical councils, where they brought all the smart people together, you know, to make decisions. And... Uh, but you had really some really good things. I don't want to make light of them. The Council of Nicaea in 325, the Council of Chalcedon in 451, wrestling specifically with this issue of who is this person, Jesus. Because there's always people who are coming in and saying, he's just a good teacher. He was a mighty man. Oh, we should respect him. But he wasn't God. No, the very point the reason it got Jesus excited was Peter recognized because the Father revealed it to them that he was God in the flesh. We're still combating this. 
We have what are now one, one group that is almost considered mainstream Christianity. And, and I have some, some wonderful friends um, who are Mormons. But the Mormons deny the deity of Christ. It's that simple. Jehovah's Witness deny the deity of Christ. And on some levels, you won't find a more moral, you won't find a more uh, welcoming group of people in many re regards. But this is an essential and fundamental aspect of our faith. One of the pleasures I had when I was a pastor back in the Middle Ages, when people come to faith, it's just exciting. It's just exciting. Always is. Never gets old. And we actually, we had a woman who had been raised in a Mormon faith church. And she came faithfully, more as a respect uh, to uh, her husband, husband's family, you might say tradition's sake. But she was intelligent and searching and thoughtful. She came after several weeks, months, came before the session to give her testimony. And at, at this time, if you go back, there was also a bumper sticker by this. And so, but she just said, I've come to the realization, Jesus is the answer. And it was no trite bumper sticker. It was... God revealing to her who Jesus really was. Kind of like Zacchaeus, that day salvation came to her house. The Apostle Paul, if you want to say the great theologian of the New Testament, then kind of comes and, and cements this whole Christology for us. And again, my point is not to, if, if it whets your, your appetite to go then uh, look up Christology and, and enroll in a course, that would be terrific. It's an amazing sort of thing. But in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, the Apostle Paul just emphasizes this point about the person of Jesus Christ when he says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And in Philippians chapter 2. Here now, as I read verses 5 to 12, 
have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And when, when the Apostle Paul uses that phrase there, that Jesus Christ is Lord, that had specific connotation to his, his hearers. The passage goes on really into then one of the most controversial passages in Scripture, although it really, really shouldn't be, because it goes from there to Peter's confession to Jesus saying, Peter, not only are you blessed and God has revealed this, um, but I tell you, Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. Now, again, the controversy, if you want to call it as such, has been that many interpret that to be Peter himself, um, which is not really, uh, I don't think it was really accepted that much by the early church. It was, that was not established until later. Um, and kind of interesting, those who hold that say that he was the first pope of Rome, which we really don't have complete evidence he ever made it to Rome. Um, and the other thing, though, is uh, that the focus of this passage is not to be Peter. The whole focus of the passage is on Christ and who he is. And so it is this confession that Peter made that was going to be the rock. Faith in Jesus as the Christ, which means his divinity, his incarnation from his birth to his sacrificial death to his resurrection to his exaltation as Lord and King. That's what the church is built on. And it says, and it even says, Jesus says, this is what I will build my church on. Church, the Greek word there, the ecclesia, the called out ones, or the community. This is what my community is going to be built on. And again, to his hearers, this would have made a lot of sense because there's a lot of of, of speculation amongst the Jews in, in this generation because of the Roman oppression as far as who's going to come and be our, our rescuer, who's going to come and be our Messiah. And so they, they, they separated themselves into communities. Uh, you've probably heard of the, the Qumran uh, community and where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, with the Essenes who separated themselves, who, who didn't want to to take part in the whole Roman uh, uh, culture. And so they had separated themselves. And so Jesus says, 
but this is what my community is going to be based on. It's going to be based on your faith in me as the Christ. And he says, and then, and then Peter's reward, oh, excuse me, I'm going to come back to where he says what? Not even the gates of hell shall prevail. This, this one is, made me do a little bit of rethinking. Because he's, he's kind of juxtaposing two communities here. The community he's establishing and the community, because what were gates for? They were built around cities, and they served two purposes, right? Keep some in, to keep others out. So Colossians 1.13. What does Colossians 1.13 say? For he has transferred us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light with his dear son. So really, what kingdom, until we receive faith, until we understand Jesus as the Christ, what domain are we in? That of darkness. And Satan would like to build a wall around that and keep you in darkness. But it says that when the light is revealed, the gates of hell will not prevail. Or another translation, we, this way this could be translated, the gates of death. Jesus transfers you from death to life. We are here in death, and the gates of hell can't keep Jesus Christ from breaking you through and entering into his dear light. And Peter's reward, you have some keys, Peter. But this is not a reckless teenager giving the keys to a car. Because what did he also tell him? Hold on. Don't tell anybody. Wait. You're not ready. They had not received the Holy Spirit. And so, so even though he was given the keys, he was given the reins at the same time. And in the book of Acts, what do we see? We see it, you know, because, and it, isn't it so amazing? Because, again, we don't always, he made this great profession, but he didn't fully understand it. Because two minutes later, he was chastising Jesus, who was the Christ. And a few uh, weeks or so down the road, he's going to be denying Christ. Peter was a frail human being. But we see a whole new Peter after the resurrection. And what were they told to do? Wait until you receive the Holy Spirit. And when Peter received the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost... The gospel was loosed. He started using those keys. So we see in chapter 1 of Acts, Peter's sermon at Pentecost. We see in chapter 5, the discipline of Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira. We see in chapter 6, them uh, establishing deacons in the church. Um, we see in chapter 8, Peter's response to Simon the magician. 
We see in chapter 10, Peter and Cornelius, in which he receives a Gentile into his midst, and in which he has a vision in which all foods are made clean. And so in a real sense, I believe this is how we see Peter exercising the keys. But they were through and driven by the Holy Spirit. Again, it wasn't some reckless teenager saying, Woohoo, let me go take a spin. So who do you say that I am? Class, let's have an IPR. Jesus is calling to you. Who do you say that I am? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, if nothing else, we are incredibly humbled by your love and mercy, infinite wisdom that would give us the gospel of Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, suffering under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried, yet raised again on the third day. Lord, forgive us for our lack of faith. Strengthen our faith that we may see the exalted King Jesus, that we may live to praise, worship, and honor our Lord and Savior, in whose name I pray, amen.